First Corinthians chapter 15 is where we're going to go. It's where we're going to be for at least the next two weeks. And uh, we're going to do a verse-by-verse study through it. I think it's going to be a huge blessing to you. It's been a huge blessing to my heart. But uh, as I stand up here this, this morning, I look out and I see uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I see a group of faithful, sunburnt tired, co-laboring ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I've got to say that my heart is incredibly full um, from the last three weeks. I know that some of you weren't able to make it out there um, this week, but we've, we have labored as a church for the last three weeks in, in a multifaceted effort to reach uh, the Kern River Valley. And so whether you stuffed envelopes or wrote notes or prepared food, but I, I was just looking at the calendar. It's been, it's been a really busy season and uh, all to the glory of God. But for the last three weeks, Last three weekends, you all and our family as well have been juggling uh, all of your priorities on top of uh, the responsibility of the gospel. We've been juggling schoolwork and and, uh, work itself and grocery shopping. How many of you, uh, we'll be honest, at least sometime in the last three weeks due to the the ministry efforts, your your refrigerator's gone a little bit empty. Ours certainly has. We we ain't got time to go grocery shopping. We're going over here and we're doing this and we're picking up this. And we went to Costco for the church, but we forgot to buy eggs. And and, uh, that's just kind of how life has been for the last three weeks as we served. Three weeks ago, we had the By Faith Banquet, and so many people showed up and served and cooked and set up and broke down, and uh, as, a, as an outflow of that, we wrote countless letters uh, by hand to folks we've never met and maybe never will meet. Uh, trips to the post office for you and your family. Two weeks ago, uh, we spent an entire day door knocking up in Kern River Valley, and uh, hours and hours and hours uh, up there door knocking, and hours and hours waiting for our pizza. I'm just kidding. If you were there, you know. Um, <laughs> But just juggling all of those responsibilities of soul winning and editing and filming and door knocking. And then uh, this last Saturday, yesterday, uh, an all-day park evangelism. And uh, I think we were up there for six or seven hours yesterday uh, just sowing the gospel. And so yesterday, last week, and the week before, you've sowed. You've watered, you've prayed, you gave, you stood on your feet, uh, you set up, you transported things in your trucks and your cars, you got stick in the canyon, and uh, you picked up trash and packed eggs and hid eggs, and uh, if you were Brother Manny, you just took bags of eggs and dumped them out on the ground, I saw him doing that yesterday, Brother Manny. Worst egg hider ever, great, great guy though, but can't hide eggs, so don't let him hide your Easter eggs next week. But we soul wind, we door knocked, we love people, and God gave the increase to his glory. And uh, let me give you this, though. Did you know that next Sunday's Easter? <laughs> Doesn't it feel that way, though? It almost feels in some way, startling way, like Easter snuck up on us, right? And in some ways, and I want to kind of address this mindset, we might feel, it's, it's not correct, we might feel like we need to shift gears now into Easter mode, church family, and uh, we need to get going because it's, it's Easter next week. But can I tell you this? What we have been doing for the last three weeks in trying to reach the unreached and trying to reach uh, Kern River Valley is perhaps the most Easter mode it it gets. Because the fact of the matter is, Easter is the gospel. Easter Easter is not an event. It it was an event, but the event has taken place and now we are living with the the, the beautiful repercussions of of the the Easter uh, resurrection morning. Easter's not an event. It's not a program. It's not an egg hunt. It's not a family photo opportunity and it's not an annual church or family tradition. Easter is about the work of salvation being completed in its fullness and offered to man, giving man a way back into the relationship with God we lost in the garden. So please listen carefully, church family, as I submit to you this year. In spite of us next week not having an egg hunt on property, in spite of there being no family photo booth, and I think those are beautiful things, in spite of, honestly, there being no big day in church in town, 
I submit to you that we've perhaps celebrated Easter better than we may have ever. Because laying down all of the extra, and I'm not saying the extra is bad. I'm simply saying by laying down all of the extra and loving the people we may never see again, it has allowed them to be, listen to me carefully, this is a biblical phrase, it has allowed them to be without excuse. Now, there was 250 people out there, and 50 of them were probably ours, maybe a little bit more. So let's say 200 Kern River Valley residents who came and heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we had, we had many of them saved that I spoke to and, and uh, different folks spoke to before and after. But here's the thing. Every single person that stood or sat in that park that day who heard the gospel is what the Bible calls without excuse. They've heard the gospel. We did our job. It's, it's whether or not they respond to that message is entirely up to them. It's entirely up to God to convict the hearts. And I do believe with all my heart he did that. But here what, here's what we, my wife and I were talking as we were coming back through the canyon, just rejoicing in the many hours of labor and so forth that God's people put forth. And then thinking about the folks who were present, my wife made this statement. So why? She said, they're without excuse now. We have brought the gospel. Really, Jim just spoke about that a little bit too. Hey, we're hoping a great work happens, but at very least... They've heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's no better way to remember the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection than to proclaim it to those who've never heard it. And listen, we can celebrate it with all of these trite different things. And I'm not saying you can't take a photo with your family and Easter dress for the girls. Those are beautiful things. But what better way to celebrate Easter than to proclaim it to a whole community who had not heard that. To offer men and women that roadmap back into relationship with Jesus Christ through salvation. And so listen... On one hand, I wholeheartedly agree. As Christians, we have the privilege to celebrate Easter. But you know that Easter is far more than a celebration. It's about the responsibility of stewardship. Because he rose... We have a responsibility. And yes, I'm all caught up, and I love Easter Sunday. Uh, it is the Sunday of the year to me. I mean, like, like, like football fanatics get excited about Super Bowl Sunday. Easter is that for me. I get pumped. I get here early. I walk the property. I love Easter. I want to see the sunrise every Easter morning. I've, for eight years, I've done it from this property, just watching it rise, thinking about the Lord Jesus. We have a privilege of celebration when it comes to Easter. But we also have the responsibility of stewardship when it comes to Easter. And we spent a lot of time this year examining what the church's responsibility is. What is the job of the church and what is not the job of the church? So let me just recap briefly because we're shifting into the third one this morning. Uh, We spent January and February talking about the church's responsibility to glorify God. That for his pleasure we are and were created. That to, to him would be glory in the church of Jesus Christ. That we would lift up the Lord and glorify him for what he's done. And then we spent March and in the first part of April, examining our responsibility toward the Word of God, in that we should desire it, that we should know it, that we should meditate on it, that we should steward its sacred light to this dark world. And this morning and this Easter, I want us to continue into the idea of a church's responsibility, but as it relates to the church's responsibility to preach the gospel to every creature. And let me just again, briefly, I I, I wish I did it more, I should do it more, but can I just gush as your pastor for my love for each and every one of you? I've never seen a group of people over the last three weeks work as hard as you all have. No pretension, just God's people serving the least of these. No posturing for importance. Well, I want the more important job. And and pastor, how come I have to serve hot dogs? Or why do I have to? No, none of that. It was just God's people being humble servants. No jockeying for position. Just faithful saints creating opportunity for one of our men to stand up and preach the word of God with boldness. And no look at me. Just God's people playing their positions. And like I said, I'm more convinced than I ever have been that the people in this room are people who live for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the last three weeks have taken hundreds of hours of manpower, thousands of dollars, just probably in gas alone, 
So many hands, so many positions filled, so many problems solved, so many people using their gifts and abilities uh, to serve and, and reach people, again, that may never well darken the doors of this church. All for the simple hope that the gospel would go out and that people could hear the, the truth, not to build our church, but to build his kingdom. Because again, probably nobody up there is going to drive down here, but we drove up there. In fact, I'll tell you briefly of a conversation I had with a lady, and uh, somebody brought her over to me. I can't remember who it was. You might remember as I tell the story, but this lady had come up to me, and uh, somebody brought her up to me, and she said, hey, pastor um uh they introduced me as pastor and, the, and i she said can i can i please just give an offering to the church for all that they've done up here today and i stopped her and i said please don't do that i said and here's why and i spoke on your behalf i hope that's okay i said our people love you our people have spent all of the thousands of dollars more than four thousand dollars to do this project thousands of dollars hundreds of hours they drove the canyon they came up here not for a love offering Amen. they did it so you would hear the gospel and, and, and please let us do this. Let us show you the love and the gospel of Jesus Christ with no strings attached. Because, and this is how it all ties back, that's what Easter is. God coming to us when we could not go to him. I love this song, right? Uh, uh, Jesus, uh, strong and kind, it talks about that I can come to him, I can come to him, I can come to him. And I hope you caught it in that last verse. Jesus said, if I am lost, he will come to me. And that's the gospel. That not that they would come to us, but that we would go to them, to the highways and the hedges, and compel them, yes, to come in and to reach them with the gospel. And so over the next few weeks, I'm going to be leaning heavily into the idea uh, of what is the gospel and what is our responsibility toward it. So what is the gospel and what should God's people be doing with it? And to answer those two questions, I can think of no better passage than 1 Corinthians chapter number 13. Or, for, verse 15, or chapter 15, I'm sorry. 1 Corinthians 13 is great too. It talks about love. 1 Corinthians 15 is about the resurrection and the hope that it provides. So would you go with me there? Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse number 1. And we'll read and we'll pray in just a second. It says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. Now, real quick, Paul isn't saying, hey, if you're saved, or well, being saved requires you to keep these things in remembrance. No, here's what he's saying. He says, you're going to receive and stand in the gospel that saved you if you keep it in memory. And this isn't my message, but understand, if God's people were to keep in memory the gospel... I think you would not only receive the gospel, you would stand in the gospel. You would do what the gospel says if you kept it in memory. But a lot of times, I, I'm sure you're like me in this regard, uh, we've got other things in our mind. We've got other things occupying our space. And it's not that we lose our salvation, but we lose our focus. And that's what those verses are saying, that, hey, you're going to stand in that gospel if you keep it in memory, if you hold on to it. But let's keep reading in verse number three. He says, For I delivered unto you, first of all, which, uh, that which also I received, how that Christ, and here, get ready for the gospel, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture. That he was buried and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. And so here, we've heard messages on this before, but here's the gospel in a nutshell. Jesus died for your sins, according to the scripture. He was buried. His body lay in the ground. He didn't just go to sleep. His body was there in the ground, sealed in a tomb. And that he rose again the third day, according to to the scripture. So let's pray and we'll dive into this passage, a beautiful passage, a lot of things to learn to mine out of this text. So let's pray. Father, guide us today. Thank you for a great people to serve with, Lord. Amen. Father, thank you for the privilege of, of being able to serve alongside of these men and women and these teenagers and children, God, who faithfully gave of themselves and their time to love a people that may never well understand what they gave for their sake. But God, we do that in, in, in response to what you gave to us. And Paul very clearly is saying that. That he received and therefore he gave. 
He received the gospel and gave it to them, and they, gave, they got the gospel, and they should be giving it to other people. And I pray that we, Lord, would live and operate in this text and in the truths found in it. Bless these people for their faithfulness and encourage them, God. Strengthen them. Give them sweet rest this week and provide opportunities for them to be able to, to, to pick up some of the slack that was dropped this week because of serving. And God, just give them, give them grace and, 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 a, and a blessing. Father, help us, Lord, to be faithful to steward these beautiful truths of Scripture. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Over the next two weeks, we're going to spend, and it may take more time than that, but at least for the next two weeks, we're going to walk ourselves through this powerful passage. Now, this particular passage of 1 Corinthians 15, uh, there's no other passage in the Bible uh, that addresses in greater detail the power and the hope of the resurrection. In fact, the last half of the chapter talks about how the resurrection gives us hope for not only forgiveness of sin, but that there will someday be a resurrection for our bodies as well. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is a powerful powerful passage when it comes to, number one, what is the gospel? And number two, what does the resurrection do? And that part we're going to get to next week during Easter. And so what I want to do is this morning, I want to take some time and really mine out. I think there's three or four truths this morning from the passage that Paul is teaching us as it relates to our responsibility toward the gospel. So number one, we're going to go back to verse number one of chapter 15. I want you to see number one in the first part of this text, uh, Paul is giving us what I'm going to call a blueprint for the Great Commission. Now, don't check out. I know I preach on our responsibility to preach the gospel often, but I want, to hear, I want you to hear how Paul says it. He says it in a very convincing way. It, it's really very good. Think about the idea of a blueprint, though. A blueprint is stri- simply a structural design of something, how something is supposed to be built or how something is supposed to work. Now, I'm not a, I'm not a vocab nerd. If you're in our church family, you know that for sure. Uh, grammar in English is not my, I mean, it's not my first language. It, it feels like my second language sometimes, but I'm not very good at this. But I want you to pay attention for four action verbs. These are verbs that are just doing. It's not a linking verb. It's a verb that says, hey, there's something happening here. Let's read through verses 1 and 2 and see if you can find those particular action verbs. I'll emphasize them for you. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 says, moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you. So there's something happening. Paul says, hey, I'm declaring something to you which ye also received wherein ye stand. He says, so I'm preaching to you this truth, and you, because of the gospel, have received that truth, and you stand in that gospel. Now, I want you to jump down to verse number three. He says, for I delivered unto you first of all, and notice he says it backwards, that which also I received. So I hope that you're catching this. Paul says, hey, I received something. So let's put verse 3 in front of verse 1. He says, I preach to you what I received. So let me kind of say it this way. Paul says, I received something because someone preached it to me. And then I took it and I preached it to you. And because someone preached it to you, you received it. Really what we're finding is this blueprint for how the gospel works. Now let me just say real quick. Happily raise your hand if you have received the gospel of Jesus Christ. Raise your hand. What a blessing. Now real quick, I'm going to ask you to actually, who, who preached to you the gospel? Shoot your hand up. Let me, see, let me hear who preached to you the gospel. Ms. Gabby, your husband preached to you the gospel. Praise the Lord. Who preached to you the gospel, Brother Eddie? Oh, that sounds like I'm picking on me. Okay, I forgot. I, I led Eddie to Christ. I wasn't trying to posture there. Uh, who led you to Christ? Your brother did. Who led you to Christ, Sammy? Awesome. So someone preached to you the gospel of Jesus Christ and you received it. Now understand what Paul is saying is that's half of the blueprint. And that's a beautiful half. Praise God for every person who received the preaching of God's word. So I asked who gave you the gospel. Now let me ask you the second part. You probably know it. Who have you preached the gospel to? 
Who have you shared this beautiful message with? It's the natural reaction is what Paul is saying. That's the blueprint. He says, hey, I received of the Lord what I delivered to you. And I preached to you and you received it as well. Listen, being a soul winner, I want to kind of address something. Sometimes we think that being a soul winner, being a gospel sharer, a preacher of the word, sometimes we think that's like some high level, like, you know, that's, that's really, you know, philanthropic. That's something for the big leagues, you know. They're really killing the big one when they preach the gospel. But can I submit to you that to preach the gospel is merely a reaction to what you've already received? And by way of testimony, you raised your hand, and maybe you're here, and you couldn't honestly raise your hand. You don't even know what the gospel is. Well, hang on. I'm going to get to that. We'll talk about that for you. But if you're here and you've received the gospel, the natural reaction is to share it with others. In fact, just a few chapters back, would you go to chapter 9 with me? 1 Corinthians 9, verse number 16. Paul gives us some clarity on this idea. Well, you know, when I get really, you know, sold out for Jesus, I'll preach the gospel. You know, that's a really big deal. It's kind of like when someone gives in the offering for the first time. They feel like they're really, you know, they killed the big one. That's, that's not what the gospel is. Everyone should be doing it. Look what he says in 1 Corinthians 9, 16. For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. For necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe, which is a curse. Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. So sometimes we think, well, preaching the gospel, you know, Brother Jim got up and he preached the gospel yesterday, and that I would do that when I get to that level. No, I'm telling you, you're all at that level. We are all responsible. And Paul says it's not some big thing that, you know, I get to walk around as the pastor and say, I'm preaching the gospel this morning. That makes me a great Christian. No, it makes you an obedient Christian. You don't have to wait until you've been saved for five years, 10 years, 15 years to preach the gospel. This is the natural reaction to scripture. In fact, John, uh, uh, Paul says it another way in Romans 1. I'll read it for you. Verse 14, he says, I am debtor. Now, I'm not going to ask by way of lifted hand, but if you've ever experienced debt, you, you understand what he's saying. I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. Well, what, is, what debt does he owe? So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Here's what Paul said. Someone gave me something. This is how debt works, Right? Someone lends you credit. You receive it. Now you owe it. But here's how the gospel works. God says, yeah, I am the one who paid for it, and I gave it to you. He says, I'm not asking you to give it back to me. I'm asking you to give it out. I'm asking you to give it forth to the Jew, to the barbarian, to the Greek, to all mankind, because we owe a debt. That's the blueprint. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is meant to be shared. It's meant to go forth. It's meant to have power to change people's lives. And I know I'm preaching to the choir. I'm preaching to Faith Baptist Church, which is better than the choir. And I'm thankful for you living out the gospel. Now, I will say, I think, I think we'd be really, really hard to find. And I don't mean to, to push on anyone particularly, but it is my job to reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. I, would, I think it'd be really hard for me to pick anybody who had no part in the last three weeks. But if you did have no part, then just let the Holy Spirit of God work on you because you missed out on an awesome opportunity. And I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm trying to make you feel like, man, I missed out on an awesome opportunity. Because the gospel of Jesus went out and people were saved. And you could have had a part of that. I don't care if you served beans at the banquet. I don't care if you served hot dogs up there. Uh, listen, we all had a part in that. I didn't even get to preach that day. Brother Jim did. What a blessing to have a church full of laborers and servants who will play their part so the gospel goes forth. But I'm just simply admonishing you to have a part. Because that's how the gospel works. So let's keep reading and mining out these truths. Verse number 3 says, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which also I received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, that's the gospel, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Now lean real hard into verses 5 through 8. I love what he's about to give us. You've got to catch what he's passing to us. Verse number 5. 
and that he was seen of Cephas, that's Peter, then of the twelve. So here's what he says. He's about to go through a list of eyewitnesses. He says, Peter saw him. And then the apostles saw him, verse 6. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at one time, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. He says, he was seen of Peter. He was seen of the apostles. Then he was seen of 500 people at one time. And at the writing of that, this particular book, they were, some of them were still alive. Verse number 7. After that, he was seen of James, his own brother. And honestly, I know why Peter included this, this man in the list. James rejected Jesus. James, James wouldn't even care for his own mother because he rejected Jesus so much. At the cross, John had to take Mary, the mother of Jesus. But after the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus came to his own brother James. And James got saved. And Peter's going through this list of people who had seen the resurrected Lord. He says, Peter and the twelve and then James. Keep reading verse 7. Then of all the apostles, Jesus showed himself uh, on the Sea of Galilee to all of the apostles. And then look at verse number 8. This is personal now. And last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. And here's the second truth that Paul is trying to give to us as it relates to the gospel. Number one, not only is he giving us the blueprint of the Great Commission. Number two, he is giving to us here in this text of 1 Corinthians the factual, tangible, credible, corroborated reality that Jesus is in fact alive. And he's trying to get his reader, the audience, and his reader, you and I today, he's trying to say, listen, they saw him, and then he saw him, and then they saw him, and then I saw him. He is alive. He knows this. Paul knows this. And it's what he's trying to give to us today. If you and I can accept the fact, the absolute uh, reality of Scripture and history that Jesus is alive, Paul knows this. It will have a powerful effect on your life. If you can recognize like the apostles did, let me just kind of sidebar here with you for a second. Let me reason with you. If you can acknowledge today that, yes, Jesus existed, and I assume all of God's people would agree with that, and that Jesus died, we'd all agree with that, and that Jesus rose again, we would all agree with that, but we wouldn't actually like appropriate that to our, our lives and our, our thinking. Here's what that means. They can't keep him dead. Nobody can conquer him. The world is powerless against a God they can't even put in the ground and keep him there because death is final. No one comes back from that. Listen, they say death and taxes, right? That's kind of funny, but like legit, death is death. It's over. The, the Pharisees and the Roman government and the kings of this world, they put him in a tomb, but he came back out. What are you going to do with that? You can't kill him again. You couldn't hardly kill him the first time. He let, he let them do that. And here's what, here's what Paul is saying. All the people he just listed, those apostles, each one of those men, happily and willingly laid down their lives because they knew that death wasn't the end. Yeah, sure, you can, as history records, crucify Peter upside down, but what are you going to do? You can't keep me in the grave either. Jesus rose, so am I. You, you, could, you could exile John on the Isle of Patmos and leave him there without food, and you know who shows up? Jesus. The world is powerless against the resurrection, and you and I are empowered by the resurrection, which is what he's trying to explain to us by going through this list of factual, credible, reliable witnesses to say, he's alive. And then he's going to continue in the chapter and talk about how the gospel helps us. But I want you to think, Paul even said this himself. At the very end of his life, he's writing his final letter to Timothy, his son of the faith. And here's what he says. For I am now ready to be offered. Yes. To be honest, read between the texts, that's, that's gory. I'm about to be a lamb, slain and sacrificed. History records for us, Nero beheaded Paul. He says, I'm ready. I'm ready to be offered. And the time of my departure is at hand. And he says, I fought a good fight. I finished my course. And here's the thought. I have kept the faith. He said, you could take my head, but you can't take my faith because I saw him. 
he is alive. And you can bury my body and you can put it in the ground, but you did the same thing to Jesus, but the grave couldn't hold him either. And because I'm buried with him in baptism, I will be risen with him again. And he is ready to be offered to his risen king, to be poured out like an offering. Uh, He has kept hold of his faith because he saw him alive after his passion. Listen, there is a reason that Paul spends four verses in the middle of this chapter about the gospel trying to get us to believe the corroborated evidence that he was seen alive. Because we know, well, Paul knew, and hopefully we know too, that if we can really lay hold on that idea that death can't be, death can't be the end. Death is not the end. Death was not his end. There is no sting in the grave. There is no victory in the grave. He took it when he rose. And you can do whatever you want to me. And Jesus can take whatever he wants from me. Because death is not the end. He is a risen, is God. I don't want to say he's a risen God. He is the risen God. And Paul says this is going to change our life. This is going to change the way we live and operate. If we can understand that he was seen of Cephas. And then of the twelve. And then of James. And then of the twelve. And last of all, as one born in due time, I saw him. Take my life and pour it out. You can have it all. You can take my head. You can take my riches. You can put me in shipwreck. You can put me in a night and a day in the deep. You can put me in prison and perils of countrymen and perils of robbers. He's alive. And yet so few of us approach work and life with that courage. We're like, oh, it's just so hard right now. He's alive. That gospel truth of the resurrection is powerful. I want you to notice number three. Number one, we find the blueprint in this passage. Number two, we find evidence of the resurrection. Number three, we find that the gospel produces in us a humble surrender. Look at verse number 9. You're going to just keep reading through the text. I'm letting the text preach for us this morning. He says, for I am the least. He just talked about the apostles, Cephas and the twelve and so forth. And then he says, for I am the least of the apostles, in verse 9, that am not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. As he thinks about the resurrection, as he thinks about the gospel of Jesus Christ, here's what he says. Not only... Uh, do I not deserve the gospel? He says, I don't deserve to be called an apostle. I don't deserve to get to do what I do because I was the one persecuting and attacking the church. But look at verse 10. He makes this emphatic statement. In spite of not deserving it, he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Can I just say, I'm going to testify with Paul. I don't deserve to be called a Christian. I don't deserve to stand up here as a pastor and and in some respects be the the preacher or the mouthpiece of this scripture and of God's spirit. I don't deserve that that responsibility. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And let me just testify for you. Apart from the grace of God, you, Brother Jim, let me talk to you for a second. Apart from the grace of God, you could have been the person we were trying to reach yesterday. His family could have been the one showing up to get a hot dog. So could yours. Well, I was born in the church. That's the grace of God. You could have been born in Bangladesh. You could have been born anywhere. Apart from the grace of God, you, you wouldn't be where you are. So if you're here today and you could testify by that uplifted hand, hey, I'm a, I'm a child of God. I've received the gospel. That's the grace of God. And you don't deserve, listen to me, to have handed out a hot dog yesterday. You don't deserve to have been able to be the one with the truth witnessing to somebody yesterday. By the grace of God, except for the grace of God, you'd have been the one seated in the chair. You'd have been the one with the broken family showing up, hoping that, you know, we can get a break from the kids and let them play in the bounce house. Apart from the grace of God, you and I would be in the same place. But here's what Paul says. We are, by the grace of God, what he's made us. You are a child of the king. You are the one who has been saved and been enlightened. You have received the gospel. And because we've received the gospel, Paul's going to change the corner now. And you know where he is. You know how preachers do. They get you feeling real good, and then they, they get you. That's where Paul's going. He 
He says, man, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Now, keep reading verse 10. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. He said, God saved me by his grace. I don't deserve to be saved. I don't deserve to be called an apostle. But by his grace, he saved me. And his grace was bestowed upon me was not in vain. Notice what he does. Because he received the gospel, he doesn't deserve to be where he is. But because he's where he is, notice what he does. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace, that grace that put me where I am, the grace of God which was with me. Here's what he said. Listen, and I'm going to testify to you. You don't deserve to be the one seated in the church today with the gospel. You may as well, apart from the grace of God, and you would be the person outside of this room tonight or today who'd be going to the beach or arguing with their wife or hungover from yesterday. Apart from the grace of God, you'd be there. But by the grace of God, you are what you are. Paul says this, and because we received that grace, we shouldn't have received it in vain. We should be laboring. In fact, we should be laboring more abundantly than they all. And I think Paul from the text is talking about those other guys that witnessed. But here's what Paul said by way of Paul's testimony. He said, I was something that James and Peter and those guys, they never were. He said, I shouldn't even be called an apostle. I was persecuting them. I was trying to crush them. And he said, but by the grace of God, I got saved and I am what I am. And because of that, I'm laboring harder than anyone I know for the gospel's sake. So let me just kind of bring it to you, to your doorstep today. You're here and you got saved. Some of you got saved later in life. And you might look at the kids on the front row and think, man, you know, I don't want them to end up like where I was. I'm, I'm way worse than our church kids were. I'm not even meet to be called an apostle. But because of where you were, you should be laboring more abundantly than they all. In fact, in Luke 7, you can just write down the text. You don't necessarily need to go there. But in Luke chapter number 7, Jesus gives us this point with the woman who washes feet with her tears. He said, the one who has been forgiven most loves the most. When you have been so broken, you're the apostle Paul hailing people to prison, breaking up homes, trying to crush the church. And he says, I was forgiven so much. And because of that, I love him so much. And some of you who were saved later in life need to, need to adopt this verse as, your, as whatever life you have left as that life verse. Because by the grace of God, he saved me, I'm going to labor harder than anybody. I've got time to make up. I've got lost ground to make up for. I made mistakes. And listen, we don't have to, praise God, we don't have to work for our salvation. But like Brother Jim said, we get to work because of our salvation. We get to labor more abundantly than they all. So listen, the gospel of Jesus Christ made us alive. Jesus we don't have to work off our salvation. We get to work out our own salvation. And what a privilege that is. And can I just echo those words of verse number 10 as he closes, or as I close? Not in vain. Jesus saved you, but for what? Well, he saved me to keep me out of hell. It's true. And if that was all he got, he would take it. But that's not all he wants. He desires for your life to labor more abundantly. He desires for you to have fruit and abundant fruit. He desires for you to surrender yourself and follow him and give yourself to his gospel for the sake of lost people. And again, let's just end the, the, the study in verse 11. This is kind of, there's going to be a shift in verse 12, and we'll get to that next week. Verse 11 says this, Therefore, whether it were I or they, so I labored more than they did, but whether I did it or they did it, so we preach, and so ye believed. I love that verse. I think about yesterday because of that verse. Hey, listen, whether you preached or I preached, they heard the gospel. And that's, John, that's, what, that's what Paul is saying here. It doesn't matter who preaches the gospel. It's God that gets the increase when souls get saved. And listen, the gospel made us alive. Because of his death and his burial and his resurrection, you and I have grace to be what he wants to create us to. But what he wants, us to, create, want, what he wants to create us into isn't just someone who takes it and sits with it, but someone who takes it and carries it. 
So let me say this, and I honestly, I've got two more statements and I'm done. We should all respond to the gospel this morning. If you're here and you have never accepted the gospel as your means of salvation, today is the day for you to be saved. What I mean by that is there are all kinds of things you, can, you think you can trust in to get you saved. You might be here and you think, well, if I go to church, I go to heaven. The Bible says that's not true. There are plenty of people who go to church that go to hell. Well, if I'm a good person, then I'll go to heaven. No, there are plenty of people who do many good works and cast out demons and all kinds of things, and they go to hell. If you're trusting in anything other than the gospel, what's the gospel again? The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. If you're trusting in anything other than that to save you and forgive your sins, you are on your way to hell. And that's not unkind. That's not, that's not stark. It's just true. And if you're here and you'd like to accept what Jesus did on your behalf because the wages of sin is death, you will stand before God guilty of all of your sin. He's seen it all. Your wife hasn't seen it all. Your husband hasn't seen it all. Your parents haven't seen it all. But the eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. Nothing you've done in secret, though you make your bed in hell, he is there. He sees it all. And if you die in that sin, you die guilty before him. And you will be guilty of the penalty of sin. And the penalty of sin is death. And the only escape of that is the gospel. That Jesus died and that he was buried, and that he rose again to conquer your, your sin debt and mine, to give us freedom, not just from the penalty of sin, but also from sin itself. It's a beautiful proposition that he's offering to us, this forgiveness and freedom, but you must accept him and him alone as your means of salvation. And if that's you and you've never done that, you need to respond to the gospel. If you're here and you're saved, you too have a responsibility because you are what you are by that saving grace. You didn't deserve it, you should have been the person on the other side of the table. I know you're tired and I'm tired standing and serving, but, but just hypothetically think. Apart from the grace of God, you would have been the person on the other side of the table yesterday. And because that grace was given, it shouldn't be given in vain. We should be laboring more abundantly than they all. And listen, whether he preaches or you preach or they preach, we need to be preaching so that people can hear the gospel and that the grace of God would not be bestowed upon us in vain. Let's pray.